are listening live to the latest edition of the Sports Pen on ESPN-UP. Good afternoon, Tanner Hoops with you Friday. Glad to have you along as always. But I tell you what, we got a lot to get to before we send you into the weekend. I've got a guest who's going to join me here in just a minute. Plus, I've got a specialty segment coming up in about 10 minutes. The NBA has been setting a trend. Will the NFL follow it? If they did, how drastically would the landscape of the league change? I've got the results. And I'll explain a little bit deeper. That's coming up in about 10 minutes. Plus, I've been working hard on this. The trade deadline ended a couple of days ago for Major League Baseball. I have got a list of the worst trade in the history of all 30 Major League Baseball franchises. That'll come up in the back end of our show. But I want to start by talking about an event that's going to be coming to Marquette next week. And I'm joined by Nikki DeWald. She is the race coordinator of Orde Shore. Their 20th anniversary coming up a week from tomorrow. Nikki, a Appreciate you being here. For our listeners who may not know what Orta Shore is, give us a little overview about what that is, what that'll entail. Well, one exciting thing this year is the Orta Shore is celebrating the 20th anniversary. Mm. So we have been racing bikes through the woods from Ishpeming to Nagani for 20 years now. And we are so excited to offer a couple things to kick that off. But for the listeners that need to know exactly what the Ortashore is, basically it's the largest point-to-point race in the Midwest. That's what makes us cool, number one. Number two is we're a very family-oriented race. We have a 48-mile hard rock. Our soft rock is 28 miles. We have a shore rock that is 10. And then we also have kids' races, and there's different distances for the kiddos as well. So it's always fun for the whole family to come to Marquette and partake in the race. Yeah, you got a lot of events outside the races, what have you, a raffle that's going to be on display. Tell me about that. Yes, this is very cool. So we're having our Order Shore 20th raffle, 20th anniversary raffle, and the grand prize is an Order Shore quilt. Mm. And this Order Shore quilt was crafted by Time Flies Quilt and Sew, and it is a piece of art. Mm. And it depicts every t-shirt from the last 20 years of the Order Shore. How about that? Yes. Yeah. It is very cool. It's beautifully crafted. We also have a second pra- place prize, which is a Rolf Prima 30-inch 29er wheel set. Third prize is a wonderful two-night stay at the Staybridge Suites here in Marquette. How about that? Yeah. All right, so plenty going on with the raffle, what have you. If anyone wants to get involved, this is on August 10th, by the way, Saturday coming up. Anyone wants to get involved, is it too late to register? If so, how do they go about doing that? We are taking registrations till Friday night at 9 o'clock. So think about it. Look at the... Look at our race page, look at our Facebook, and we also are very interested in any community members being a part of volunteering. That is one of the most awesome things about our race, is we have over 500 volunteers from service clubs at aid stations to just uh, helping out, hand out awards even. Do you have somewhat of an estimate as far as how many racers you might have this season? Well, I always have the hopes to break our record, which is 2,499 racers, and that was set back in, like, 2017. This year, we already have over 1,600 racers Mm. signed up, 
Last year we were on about the same par as we are now, um, but I need to actually talk to the community and see if we can get some kiddos in because last year our numbers were down for our, our kiddos race. And so in the past we've had about 500 kids. Last year we had about 300, but gosh darn it, we need 500. Tell me about the racers themselves. Do you get people who come from all over the Midwest, maybe a few international racers? We do get people that come from all over the Midwest and international racers. We have racers that come back every year. And this year we have invited all the past winners of the 48 and the 28 mile back. And we are doing a new thing to celebrate our 20th anniversary, and that is we have a couple different cash prizes. We have a cash prize set aside for the first racer to hit Misery Hill. So if you're a racer, you'd push it to Misery Hill for this cash prize, or you would keep yourself safe so that you could really win the race. We also have a cash prize set aside for a racer in the 48 and the 28 who can beat the record. So the record has always been within one to two minutes, and so we're pushing it out there to see if someone else can beat that record. You've been keeping this going for 20 years. I mean, that's quite an accomplishment. But how cool is it, how rewarding is it to be able to sustain something like this at a high level, number one in the Midwest, like you alluded to? Well, one of the big things, again, is that we're a point-to-point race. The beautiful scenery and just being outdoors. I think that pull, that's a big pull. Um, Our geography, our community is very welcoming and just pristine. Um, the other piece is that we have working real hard to make it a family-orientated event. Um, for example, start the cycle. They are on. They are order shore race ambassadors this year, so they're going to be on course racing, but also they're going to take time to help anybody out that needs to change a tire or things like that. We also have our Market Mountain Ski Patrol, that is our medical, and they are dialed in to every single section of that course and we owe a lot of thanks to them for keeping everyone safe during the race so it's it's a lot of teamwork and a lot of foresight on how to change the race every year to make it better and uh and to have more fun Nikki DeWald is the director of Or to Shore, their 20th anniversary coming up on August 10th. Well, you mentioned the need for volunteers, Nikki. If someone wants to get involved, wants to help with that, how do they go about doing that? Who do they contact? Well, they can contact me at Or to Shore, all one word spelled out, at gmail.com. They can also call our race number or look us up online at ortoshore.com. So we have all our volunteer information on, online, and from there you can go in and you can see the different positions available, the times, so that you can align yourself with something that you have talent for. Um, we're looking for people at our finish line on Saturday, doing the bike corral, helping with the kids' races, and also helping with race receipts and just um, sharing information to racers about what's going on for the day. Anything else that I missed that you wanted to hit on? 
Well, we just want to thank the Marquette community, Nagani and Ishmaming, everybody for, you know, coming together for this weekend. I mean, we got we got two weeks out, and this is my favorite time because so many people get so excited and they give so much, and it's, it's just a wonderful event to be a part of if you want to volunteer or race, and hopefully we'll see you there. I'll be there for sure. Nikki DeWald is the race coordinator for Ordishore. Appreciate the time. We'll see you on Saturday. Thank you. Bye, Tanner. Let's take a time out. When we come back, the NBA has been following a certain trend. What if the NFL did the same thing? How different would the league look? I'll explain, and I'll give you the results next on ESPN-UP. Check out the UP's live and local sports talk show, The Sports Pen. Weekday afternoons at 4 on ESPN-UP and on the ESPN-UP app. Welcome back to The Sports Pen on ESPN-UP. Tanner Hoops with you Friday afternoon. Delighted to have you along as always. Well, I tell you what, have you noticed a trend going around in the NBA lately? Several players have chosen to return home. They want to play where they grew up, or at least as close to it as they can get. So what if the NFL decided to follow that trend? Now, I'm not saying it's going to happen, or even that I think it will. I suppose it could. But the NBA has a much different culture than the NFL. In fact, as you're going to see with the list that I compiled, very few players are with their hometown team, or with the team closest to where they grew up. I compiled a list of last year's NFL All-Pro first team, and then a few other notables we're going to throw in there. Another way to think about it is, and this is even less likely, if the NFL adopted the same player rights rules as the Alliance of American Football did. Remember that? Their draft was based upon where a player grew up, and where he played his college football. That geographical area determined which team he was going to play for. Now, that'll never happen in the NFL, but what if it did? What if NFL players played for their hometown team? Or if they all suddenly get this NBA fever where they want to return home and play for the team that they grew up watching? I'll give you an example. Tom Brady is from San Mateo, California. The closest NFL franchise is San Francisco. That means Tom Brady would be quarterback of the San Francisco 49ers. Now, we know that's never going to happen. He's going to retire as a New England Patriot. But if we had the AAF player rights rules, or Tom just decided he wanted to play out his final years closer to home, that's how this league would look. By the way, if this model did happen, Aaron Rodgers is from Chico, California. He would battle Tom Brady for the starting quarterback job in San Francisco. How about that? I'd love to see that quarterback battle. Another example, Eli Manning, quarterback in New York right now. He is from Mississippi, which means the closest geographical team would be the New Orleans Saints, which Dan Graziano pointed out a couple of weeks ago, that could very well happen in the next few years. That is a segment for a different day, though. Let's get into this list. The NFL All-Pro team from this past season, if they decide they want to be like several NBA superstars, and they want to go home. Let's start at the quarterback position, Patrick Mahomes of the Kansas City Chiefs. He is from White House, Texas, the closest franchise. Dallas. So Patrick Mahomes would be quarterback of the Dallas Cowboys. How much do you think Jerry Jones would kill for that to be a reality right now? By the way, Drew Brees is from Austin, which means the quarterback battle, if we had the AAF player rights rules, or guys decided they just want to play for their hometown team, the Dallas Cowboy quarterback battle would be between Patrick Mahomes and Drew Brees. Jerry Jones, if he's listening right now, he's passed out on the floor somewhere, and the people with him are trying to revive him, getting the smelling salts out. How about a running back, Todd Gurley of the Los Angeles Rams? Well, here's an interesting situation because he was born in Baltimore, so you think Ravens. But he spent most of his childhood in Tarboro, Maryland, which is actually geographically closer to Charlotte, North Carolina. 
he would be a Carolina Panther. But to be honest with you, I think if Carolina had their choice, they'd probably let Baltimore have him. Again, I'm a guy who thinks Todd Gurley's best days are behind him. They've already got Christian McCaffrey. If I'm the Panthers, I'm not making that trade. I'm not trading Christian McCaffrey for Todd Gurley. At the flex position, Tariq Hill of Kansas City. He's another guy that his birthplace and where he grew up are different. He was born in Louder Hill, Florida, but he grew up in Douglas, Georgia, so he would be an Atlanta Falcon. Think of that duo. Unfortunately for Dan Quinn, Julio Jones is going somewhere else based on this model, so we wouldn't get to see him paired up with Tariq Hill. That wouldn't be fair anyway. Tight end, another Kansas City Chief, Travis Kelsey. Well, he's from Cleveland, so he would be a Cleveland Brown. Could you imagine Freddie Kitchen's delight? And that Cleveland offense would be scary, but again, a lot of the guys that are with Cleveland, if you use this model, would not be there right now. The two wideout positions, Michael Thomas, the new richest wideout in the NFL. Boy, he got paid the other day. He is from Woodland Hills, California, just outside of Los Angeles. Now, here's a weird situation because you've got two L.A. teams. So I brought out the old Google Maps as the tiebreaker, and I looked how far it was in miles and in total driving distance from Woodland Hills, California, to both the Rose Bowl and Dignity Health Sports Park. The tie goes to the Rams. Michael Thomas would be an L.A. Ram. The other wide receiver that made NFL All-Pro first team last year, DeAndre Hopkins of the Houston Texans, he's from the town of Central South Carolina, which means he's joining Todd Gurley with the Carolina Panthers. The offensive line, the tackle positions, David Bottiari and Mitchell Schwartz. Bottiari from the same hometown as Tom Brady, San Mateo, California. So if the NFL use the AEF player rights model or... Tom and Bottiari just decide they want to go home and play for their hometown team, then that means you have Tom Brady under center with David Bottiari protecting him at left tackle, both in San Francisco 49er uniforms. It's weird to think about. It's like you just randomize rosters in Madden. The right tackle last year, Mitchell Schwartz from Kansas City. He is from Los Angeles. But again, you got to go with the tiebreaker. What is the closest stadium from his neighborhood? The Rams once again win the tiebreaker. The two guard positions, Quentin Nelson and Zach Martin, a couple of Notre Damers. Nelson with the Indianapolis Colts is from Red Bank, New Jersey. Now take your pick. The closest franchises to him are the Jets and the Giants, but there really is no tiebreaker because they play in the same stadium. So take your pick, Quentin Nelson to the Giants or Jets. I tell you what, either one would kill to have Quentin Nelson on their line right now. And then Zach Martin on the right side of the Dallas Cowboys. He's from Indianapolis. So, in effect, he'd take Nelson's spot and slide into the Indianapolis Colts offensive line. The first-team All-Pro center from this past NFL season, Jason Kelsey, brother of Travis Kelsey, currently with the Philadelphia Eagles. Like his brother, he is from Cleveland, so he would join the Browns. The Kelsey brothers going to Cleveland. So that was the All-Pro offense from this past season. How about defensively? Again, we are looking at if several NFL superstars decided to play for their hometown team, go play close to home. You saw Kyrie Irving do that, Paul George, Kawhi Leonard, all kinds of these superstars wanting to play close to home. What if the NFL did that? Or, more practically, what if the NFL adopted the Alliance of American Football Players' Rights Rules? Again, that one will never happen, but it's fun to think about. The edge rushers on first-team All-Pro defense, J.J. Watt of Houston and Khalil Mack of Chicago. Now, J.J. Watt is from Waukesha, Wisconsin. J.J. Watt in a Packer uniform. Now, that'd be a sight to behold. Plus, Khalil Mack would leave the North. Khalil Mack is from Fort Pierce, Florida. The closest franchise is Miami, which means he would get to match up against Tom Brady at least twice a year. Now, that would be fun to see. The interior linemen, Aaron Donald and Fletcher Cox. Donald with the L.A. Rams. He's from Pittsburgh. 
even went to college in Pittsburgh, so he would likely be a Steeler. Fletcher Cox, out of the Philadelphia Eagles, he is from Yazoo City, Mississippi. Closest franchise, the New Orleans Saints. The three linebackers, Luke Keekley of Carolina, Bobby Wagner of Seattle, and Darius Leonard from Indianapolis. Keekley is a native of Cincinnati, so he would be a Bengal. Ooh, the Bengals love that. They love the prospect of Luke Keekley in a Bengal uniform. Bobby Wagner from Seattle, a guy who had a 99 rating in Madden this year, one of four players to achieve it. Again, I don't necessarily agree, but Madden thinks differently. He is from Ontario, California. And the closest franchise for him would be the L.A. Rams. Rams are making out like bandits in this model. Their team definitely advocating for this, or the Panthers. Darius Leonard, who just led the NFL in tackles as a rookie. Indianapolis Colts linebacker, he's going to be a star in the NFL. He's from Nichols, South Carolina, which would make him a Carolina Panther. See, the Panthers are just racking up talented players. You lose Keekley, but you garner Darius Leonard. I think they'd make that trade-off, given where they are in their careers right now. The secondary, first at the corner position, Kyle Fuller from Chicago and Stephon Gilmore from New England. Fuller is from Baltimore, so he'd be a Raven. Gilmore, can you believe he is the only New England Patriot that was a first-team All-Pro last year? The Super Bowl champions only had one All-Pro first-teamer. He is from Rock Hill, South Carolina. Guess where he's going? The Carolina Panthers. Right now, they're on the phone trying to get the NFL to implement the AAF model so they can make this roster happen. The safeties, Eddie Jackson from Chicago and Derwin James from the L.A. Chargers. Jackson is from Louder Lakes, Florida, which means he would be a Miami Dolphin. James is from Haines City, Florida, which would make him a Tampa Bay Buccaneer. And then finally in the secondary, Desmond King made it as a defensive back. He is an L.A. Charger right now, but he's from Detroit. So how about that, Lion fans? You'd get a welcome Desmond King former Iowa Hawkeye, to your secondary. That is a look at first-team All-Pro defense from this past NFL season. Looking at special teams, Justin Tucker of the Baltimore Ravens was first-team place kicker. He is right now the most accurate kicker in NFL history. He holds that distinction. He is from Houston, Texas, which would make him a Texan. And the Texans are drooling at that prospect. Right now, the Texans' current kicker is Kaime Fairbairn. So Justin Tucker, Kaime Fairbairn. No contest. How about a punter? Michael Dixon. This was my favorite one. Now, he's currently punting for the Seattle Seahawks, but he was born in Sydney, Australia. He's the only foreign-born player that made NFL All-Pro first team last year. However, the tiebreaker, at least for me, being that he played his college ball for the Texas Longhorns, which would make him a Dallas Cowboy. Kick returner and punt returner. Both these guys are going to the same team. Andre Roberts, kick returner for the New York Jets. Tariq Cohen, punt returner for the Chicago Bears. One is from Columbia, South Carolina. The other from Bunn, South Carolina. That makes them both Carolina Panthers. I mean, Ron Rivera is just dreaming about putting this roster together. And then finally, first-team special teamer, Adrian Phillips of the Chargers. He is from Garland, Texas, which would make him a Dallas Cowboy. Again, if you missed it, we are looking at the AAF model as far as player rights and team control. If the NFL adopted the AAF model based on where players grew up or where they played their college ball, this is how the NFL could look. Or more realistically, if several NFL superstars decide to take after NBA superstars and decide to play closer to home. A few other notables that weren't first-teamers, Ezekiel Elliott's from Illinois. He'd be a Chicago Bear. So if you're the Bears, you'd give up Tariq Cohen to get Ezekiel Elliott. I think they'd be okay with that. I mentioned Julio Jones would be on the move. He would be heading to the New Orleans Saints. Some of that, Julio Jones and potentially Eli Manning, you think that could be a good fit? 
Better than anybody Eli has right now. Andrew Luck is from Washington, D.C., so he would be the quarterback of the Washington Redskins. Baker Mayfield and Von Miller are both from northeastern Texas, which means they would be Dallas Cowboys. First of all, Von Miller on that young defense the Cowboys have, that's scary to think about. Second of all, Baker Mayfield going to Dallas as well. So that means Patrick Mahomes, Drew Brees, and Baker Mayfield would all have their rights given to the Dallas Cowboys based on where they grew up. That's exactly why the NFL will never adopt this system. But if for some reason they decide they want to finish out their career closer to home, that might be their option. Le'Veon Bell is from the Columbus, Ohio area, so his rights would revert to the Cleveland Browns. Le'Veon with the talented Browns offense. Saquon Barkley. Now, this is interesting. Saquon is the only player that I researched that does not need to go find a new team if he doesn't want to. He's from the Bronx originally, so you have your choice, Giants or Jets. Since he's already with the Giants, might as well just keep him there. Russell Wilson would be the quarterback of the Cincinnati Bengals. He's from that area. Could you imagine how much Zach Taylor would love that? Russell Wilson instead of Andy Dalton. They would just love it. Antonio Brown is from Miami Beach. He would be a wideout for the Miami Dolphins. And then Odell Beckham Jr., he's a Louisiana guy through and through, played his college ball at LSU. He would be a New Orleans Saint. So the Saints would give up Drew Brees and Michael Thomas, but they would get Julio Jones and Odell Beckham Jr. At the very least, they'd save a little money. That is what the NFL would look like if several superstars decide to take after NBA superstars and want to play closer to home, play where they grew up, or if the NFL decides to adopt the AAF model for player rights and team control. With that, let's take a time out. When we come back, I've got my list I'm going to reveal to you with the trade deadline ending Wednesday, the worst trade all time for all 30 Major League Baseball teams. Next on ESPN-UP. Check out the UP's live and local sports talk show, The Sports Pen. Weekday afternoons at 4 on ESPN-UP and on the ESPN-UP app. Welcome back to The Sports Pen on ESPN-UP. ESPN-UP, Tanner Hoops with you. Glad to have you along this Friday afternoon. Just about set to head into the weekend. i tell you what, no time for an update because I've got a lot I want to get to over the course of the next half hour and finish out our show with something I've been working hard on for about a week now. We just had the trade deadline end a couple of days ago. So I went together and I put together a list of what I believe to be the worst trade made by every MLB franchise. We'll do half of them now. And we'll do the other 15 in the next segment. we got a lot I want to get to, so without further ado, let's jump right into it. And I've ordered these alphabetically. We'll start with the Los Angeles Angels. The worst trade in franchise history, in my mind, occurred on December 2nd, 1990. And that day, the Angels sent Devin White to Toronto in exchange for Luis Soho, Junior Felix, and Ken Rivers. Anaheim wanted to be stronger up the middle. And they thought Soho was the guy. He was the main target in this trade. And he was all right. He was a good player up the middle. He produced a war of 2.4 in his two seasons with the Angels. But then he got sent back to Toronto. He was traded back. Meanwhile, Devin White went on to win three World Series rings, including two with the Blue Jays, back-to-back. He won a gold glove every year he played with the Blue Jays, and he became the first All-Star representative in Arizona Diamondbacks history. Ended up finishing his career with 1,934 hits and a career war of 46. Again, wins above replacement. How many wins does he generate for you as compared to being out of the lineup? The Houston Astros. They sent a young man by the name of Joe Morgan to Cincinnati in exchange for Lee May, Tommy Helms, and Jimmy Stewart back on November 29, 1971. 
Morgan was already an all-star with Houston. He'd been to the game a couple of times, but he was an all-star every year for Cincinnati, a key cog in Sparky Anderson's big red machine that dominated the 1970s. And the best player that Houston got back for him was May. He averaged 27 homers and 96 RBI in three seasons for Houston, but his numbers declined each season and he was eventually traded. Helms was a gold glove winner during his four years with Houston, but he never quite matched the offensive output that Morgan was able to produce. He was fine, but he was no Joe Morgan, and Jimmy Stewart retired just two years later. That was the worst trade in Houston Astros history. How about the Oakland Athletics? And I want to qualify that there are a lot of guys that I could have picked for this one. They had a couple of head-scratching trades that included Ricky Henderson and Reggie Jackson, and a couple that maybe are still too early to tell, Yoenis Cespedes and Josh Donaldson. But I'm going to go with this one. I'm going to say Jose Canseco to the Texas Rangers in exchange for Bobby Witt, Jeff Russell, and Ruben Sierra back on August 31st, 1992. Canseco was at the height of his game, and he may have been the best player in the country at that time. I don't expect the trade to occur how it did. Canseco was on deck, was called back to the dugout, and was informed that he was traded mid-game. So here's what the A's got back. Here's why this was a terrible trade. Russell was a closer. He wasn't necessary. They had Dennis Eckersley at the time. Witt went 22-23 and 23 as a starter with Oakland. Sierra put up average offensive numbers, but he was a terrible defender. He was a defensive liability with a 961 fielding percentage. So again, a lot of choices for Oakland. That's what I'm going with for worst trade in franchise history. The Toronto Blue Jays. Well, they traded David Cohn to the New York Yankees on July 28, 1995. In exchange, they got Marty Jansen, Mike Gordon, and Jason Jarvis. This is what the Blue Jays thought would be a buy-low-sell-high move. Cohn was a reigning Cy Young winner, and he ended up being a finalist in 1995 as well. The problem was for the Blue Jays, Cone continued to get better and better. Making matters worse, two of the three prospects the Jays got back from New York never even reached the major leagues. They had a career war of negative 0.5 combined. Couple honorable mentions. They dealt Michael Young to the Texas Rangers for Esteban Loyeza in the year 2000. Again, knowing what we know now and how good Michael Young was for Texas in the mid-2000s, you hate that move. But for me, it doesn't surpass dealing David Cohn, selling the reigning Cy Young winner. You don't do that. There will be a few more examples of that. I'm just going to say right now. Here's another honorable mention. And this one is honorable mention because they didn't so much as trade him as sell his rights. Cecil Fielder to the Hanshin Tigers in the Japanese Professional League. And he was later bought by the Detroit Tigers. And, of course, we know what happened with Cecil after that. It wasn't a trade. It was just a bad move. And I don't know why the move was made. Cecil was excellent limited time with Toronto. In fact, in a Blue Jay uniform, he hit 31 home runs and drove in 84 and just 506 at-bats. So that's what I have for the Toronto Blue Jays' worst trade in Atlanta Braves history. This was a tough one. There are a few that you could have gone with, but I'm going to go with one that occurred July 29, 2008. Mark Teixeira was sent to the Los Angeles Angels in exchange for Stephen Merrick and Casey Kochman. Now, Kochman was among the shiniest prospects after tearing up the minors in 2003 and 2004, but he never quite was able to translate it to major league success. Now, Teixeira was a guy who was late in his career. He was on his last legs, but he was producing better than Kochman was at the time, and Merrick never even made it up to the major leagues. Now, you couple that with a trade that they had made previously with the Texas Rangers, and Atlanta essentially flipped the players they got from Texas to trade for Kochman. So, in essence, they gave up Elvis Andrus, a big one, Neftali Feliz, Bo Jones, Jared Saltalamakia, Matt Harrison, and Mark Teixeira 
for one full season of Casey Kochman and a career minor leaguer. Ouch. I think that's the one that does it for me. That's why I'm going to give that the worst trade in Atlanta Braves history. How about the Milwaukee Brewers? I bet there are a few of you who know which trade I'm going to say. How about this one that occurred on July 28, 2006? Carlos Lee was sent to the Texas Rangers in exchange for Francisco Cadero, Lance Nix, Kevin Mensch, and Julian Cordero. Lee had just appeared in his second career All-Star game. He was the reigning Silver Slugger, and he'd do it again the following year. He would finish his career with 17 grand slams, that seventh most all-time in Major League Baseball. Oh, and by the way, the crew threw in a AAA slugger named Nelson Cruz. And he'd go on to be named to six All-Star teams. He'd win two Silver Sluggers. He was the ALCS MVP in 2011, led the American League in homers in 2014, and RBI in 2017. I'm sure that one is still raw in the mind of a lot of Brewers fans. So let's move to the St. Louis Cardinals. Let's hear about divisional rival messing things up. There are a few that I could have picked for St. Louis. I'm going to go with one that was all the way back in 1983. June 15th, 1983, Keith Hernandez was sent to the New York Mets in exchange for Rick Ownby and Neil Allen. And it happened because Whitey Herzog, St. Louis manager at the time, hated Hernandez's attitude and no longer wanted him on the team. So Hernandez was sent to the Mets, where he led them to divisional titles in 1986 and 1988. He garnered three more all-star nods, six more gold gloves, and another silver slugger. For Whitey Herzog, talent did not matter more than attitude. Whether that was right or wrong, I don't know. But you think about what Keith Hernandez might have meant to St. Louis if he was going to stay there. Honorable mention! Steve Carlton was traded to Philadelphia for Rick Wise in 1972. The Cards thought they were selling high on Carlton after bounce back from a 19-loss season by winning 20 games the year they traded him. Now, I'm not going to give this one worst trade in Major League history because Wise did fine with St. Louis. He won 32 games in his two seasons in a Cardinal uniform. He was eventually flipped for Reggie Smith, who would turn out to be a pretty good player. So the return wasn't awful. Trading Steve Carlton, that's pretty bad. But the return saves this one from being named as the worst trade in Cardinals history. The Chicago Cubs, for their worst trade in franchise history, you got to go all the way back to 1964. June 15, 1964, the Cubs dealt Lou Brock to St. Louis in exchange for Ernie Broglio. Brock went on to become a Hall of Famer, while Broglio went 7-19 and in three seasons pitching for the Cubs. We all know about Lou Brock. That a lot more needs to be said about that. That's far and away their worst trade in franchise history. Honorable mention, though, a lot of people don't know this. Glaber Torres came up through the Cubs system. Glaber Torres, the guy who just was named an all-star for the New York Yankees. He was traded to New York in 2016 for a role as Chapman. And Chapman did help the Cubs win the World Series that year. But in the offseason, he re-signed with New York again, so the Yankees got Torres and Chapman. It's not the worst trade in franchise history. For one thing, Lou Brock's career is going to be more famed than Glaber Torres's, at least we think. For another, in the short term, it was good for Chicago. They won a World Series out of it. The Arizona Diamondbacks, worst move in franchise history. Again, they're a fairly new team, so there haven't been a lot of them. But this one came in just their second year of existence. July 8th, 1999, they sent starting pitcher Brad Penny to the Florida Marlins in exchange for Matt Monty. Remember, they were the Florida Marlins at the time. So again, the Diamondbacks are in their second year of existence. They're already in a playoff race. They have a chance to win a division, and they wanted a closer. So they get Monty, a guy through 100-something miles an hour. He ended up striking out 99 and saved 22 games down the stretch. He did help Arizona win the West, so it wasn't a total disaster of a trade. 
But this is what makes it the worst trade in franchise history for me. Arizona did make the playoffs that year, but they got bounced in the first round. In fact, their season ended on a walk-off home run, and it was served up by, you guessed it, Matt Monty. Then you couple that with what Brad Penny went on to do. He was the ace of a Dodger pitching staff that was really good in the mid-2000s, went on to have a few good years with the Marlins as well. Honorable mention, they traded Carlos Quinton to the Chicago White Sox for Chris Carter, but 11 days later, Arizona flipped Carter for Dan Heron. So you can't say that was a total loss. The L.A. Dodgers, a team that doesn't make a lot of bad trades. That's why they've been so successful over the years. But there was one in 1993, November 19th, 1993, where they sent a middle reliever named Pedro Martinez to Montreal in exchange for Delano DeShields. The Dodgers had a need at second base after Jody Reed departed. DeShields was 25 years old. He brought great speed, but in a Dodger uniform, his slash line dropped about 50 points in all three categories, and he ended up leaving in free agency four years later. Meanwhile, Pedro, who was maybe the best middle reliever in baseball at the time, had the Dodgers convinced that he didn't have starting stuff and that he never would. So they decided to sell high. Oops. Honorable mention, on Independence Day 1988, they traded Paul Konerko to the White Sox for Jeff Shaw. That one's pretty bad considering where Konerko's career went, but still not as bad as getting rid of Pedro Martinez because you didn't think he'd be a good starter. The San Francisco Giants. November 29th, 1971, they traded Gaylord Perry to Cleveland for Sam McDowell. McDowell was really good at that time. He had won five strikeout titles, and he was named to the All-Star Game six times in 11 years with Cleveland. So the Giants thought they were getting a heck of a steal. They were swapping ace for ace. The problem was, McDowell only lasted one season with the Giants. He won just 10 games and had an ERA of 4.33. Perry, meanwhile, won the Cy Young during his first year in an Indians uniform. He'd end his career with one more, 314 wins, and 3,534 strikeouts. Speaking of the Indians, I said we'd get back to some teams who sold a reigning Cy Young champ. Cleveland did it twice, and I had to pick between these two, and the one I'm going with occurred on July 7, 2008, when the Indians traded CeCe Sabathia to the Milwaukee Brewers for Matt Laporta, Rob Bryson, Zach Jackson, and a player to be named later. Two times in the last 15 years, Cleveland has traded the reigning Cy Young winner. Both were awful. But I'm going to say the Sabathia trade earns the nod because the return was less valuable. Sabathia was everything the Brewers wanted in the second half of 2008. Going 11-2 and helped them get to the playoffs. Unfortunately, they were swept out of the NLDS in four games. But no one can say the Brewers did not win that trade by a landslide. Laporta was one of the best prospects that never caught fire at the major league level. Bryson never made it to Cleveland. And Jackson went 2-3 and three with a 6-1-1 ERA for the Tribe. Here's the saving grace, the silver lining. The player to be named later turned out to be Michael Brantley, who was excellent, but he's no longer with Cleveland. That's why I'm saying this is the worst trade in Indians history. The other one I could have gone with was when they traded Cliff Lee to Philadelphia for four players, but one of those players included Carlos Carrasco, who is still an effective starting pitcher with the Indians today. The Seattle Mariners, one of the easiest choices for me. What is considered by many to be one of the worst trades of all time. On July 31, 1997, the first-place Mariners acquired a relief pitcher named Heathcliff Slocum, for a couple of prospects, they sent him to Boston, Jason Veritek and Derek Lowe. And Seattle was leading the West at the time, but they had an awful bullpen. So they wanted a closer. It was a prospect for rental deal. 
Why they wanted Heathcliff Slocum, I don't know. He had a 5.79 ERA, and his war was 0.4. He was effective, though, for Seattle. He saved 22 ball games, and he helped them win the division. But Veritek and Lowe combined for a war of 58.1 with the Red Sox, and they helped that team break the World Series drought with a title in 2004. So in the short term, did it work for Seattle? Yeah, if a division title is your only objective. Seattle had that record-setting 2001 year. Imagine if Veritek and Lowe would have been part of that arsenal instead of Slocum, who ended up walking. Audible mention, though, David Ortiz, when he was traded to Minnesota on August 29, 1996, in return, the Mariners got Dave Hollins. Hollins played just one month with Seattle, but this isn't the worst trade in franchise history because Ortiz did not last long in Minnesota. He was released and later signed with Boston. The Marlins, their worst trade in franchise history, Miguel Cabrera, and Dontrell Willis were sent to the Tigers for six players on December 4, 2007, most notably Cameron Mabin and Andrew Miller. Willis was the ace of some really good Marlins pitching staffs, but he never brought that same mastery to Detroit. However, this is still the worst trade that they've ever made because they sent one of the greatest sluggers of all time in a consensus Hall of Famer to Detroit. Miggy would go on to win three straight batting titles and two American League MVPs. Now, in return... Cameron Mabin, a journeyman outfielder whose best days came in a Padres uniform in the mid-2000s, and Miller, who didn't revitalize his career until a couple of years ago when he was a relief pitcher with Cleveland. Two I want to mention, audible mention for the worst trade in Marlins history. Johan Santana was sent to the Minnesota Twins for Jared Camp in 1999. Camp never saw the majors. Johan, a Rule 5 draft pick. We all know what he went on to do with Minnesota. He was the ace of some really good stabs that ran the AL Central in the mid-2000s. And then, of course, this one. Still too early to tell, but the way this guy is hitting, it's on pace maybe to be the worst trade in Marlins history. Sending Christian Yelich to Milwaukee in exchange for Lewis Brinson. Like, can you believe that? Someone thought that was a good idea. That was the move. Again, too early to tell, but Yelich could very well turn into Miggy. And someday that could end up being the worst trade the Marlins have ever made. Last one here before we got to take a break. The New York Mets. I'm going to go with this one that they made on July 30th, 2004. It was a three-team trade that sent top pitching prospects Scott Casimir and Jose Diaz to Florida. In exchange, they got Victor Zambrano. Then slugger Jose Batista went to Pittsburgh in exchange for Chris Benson. Casimir went on to be the ace of a raised pitching staff that went to the 2008 World Series. Zambrano, meanwhile, averaged seven walks per nine innings at the time of the trade. Zambrano, think about this. He led the American League in walks in 2004. He was traded July 30th, and despite playing two months in the National League, he still led the entire American League in walks in 2004. That's the guy the New York Mets traded for. Benson, meanwhile, went 14-12 in one season with the Mets. Batista, of course, Mr. Batflip, he went on to be named to six All-Star games. He won three Silver Sluggers, and he led the majors in home runs twice. That one is the one I pick over honorable mention sending Tom Seaver to Cincinnati in 1977 because it's multiple guys who went on to have successful careers, and there might have been a little bit of underlying tension between the front office and Seaver at the time. Someone's hand might have been forced a little bit there. Another honorable mention, when Nolan Ryan was sent to the Angels, he was part of the 69 Miracle Mets, but it's honorable mention because he didn't like the clubhouse atmosphere, and he really did force the Mets' hand to try and make a trade. That is the first half of our list, the worst trades 
for 15 of the 30 MLB franchises. We'll do the second half next here on ESPN-UP. Check out the UP's live and local sports talk show, The Sports Pen. Weekday afternoons at 4 on ESPN-UP and on the ESPN-UP app. If you missed any part of the show today, check it out on demand. You know what I'm going to say. Get our free mobile app from the Apple I Store or Google Play. Just look up ESPN-UP. You're going to want to get that app. Just succumb to it. You're going to be glad that you did. Tanner Hoops with you Friday afternoon. Let's send you into the weekend by giving you the back half of our list. By the way, tune in this weekend. ESPN Radio on ESPN-UP. Saturday and Sunday baseball. Red Sox and Yankees. We did it last week at one venue. And now we're flipping it this weekend. You can hear both games Saturday and Sunday here on ESPN-UP as well as with our app. You're going to hear both of those teams' worst trades in franchise history in this segment. We did the first 15. Again, if you missed it, check it out on demand. Now we go to the back half. And again, we're going alphabetically. We start with the Nationals, but this trade happened when they were the Expos. Nationals aren't old enough. They've only been around 15 years. We are going to combine them with the Expos. Their worst trade in league history, and there's another one I very easily could have done. I'm going to throw it up there as honorable mention in a moment. But I'm going with one that occurred on June 27, 2002. Now, the Expos were always in trouble financially. And Major League Baseball promised them that if they made the playoffs in 2002, they would get them a new stadium. Major League Baseball would supply the Expos with a new stadium. And sure enough, when the trade deadline came around, the Expos were a contending team. They were in the playoff race. So they decided that they wanted starting pitching. So they go out and get Bartolo Colon. Yes, that same Bartolo Colon, before he became Big Sexy. They send three minor leaguers, Grady Sizemore, Brandon Phillips, and Cliff Lee to the Cleveland Indians. You can already see where this one is going. Well, needless to say, it didn't work out for the Expos as they planned. Three years later, they moved to Washington, D.C., and those three players they sent to the Indians, they turned out to be pretty good. In fact, they combined for a wins-above-replacement rating of 101.4. That is why that is the worst trade in Expos history. They went all in for a stadium, trading away their future, and less than three years later, they're on the road to D.C. Honorable mention, I very easily could have put this one up there. Randy Johnson was traded to Seattle in 1989 for Mark Langston. Now, I didn't put this one as the worst trade in franchise history because Langston was a pretty good player. He did lead the American League in strikeouts, and he did achieve success later in his career. So it's not like they were getting an absolute scrub, not to say they were with Bartolo Colon, but when you think about it, their plan was to win the division in 2002 so they could get a new stadium. Doesn't work out, and they're in D.C. three years later. They didn't even need to make that trade and sell out their future that's why i gave that trade the moniker of the worst in franchise history another honorable mention pedro martinez traded to the red sox in 1997 but pedro's contract was up at the end of the year and he made it very clear that he wasn't going to re-sign with montreal so they decided to cut their losses because they were forced to they end up getting back tony armis and carl pavano the Baltimore Orioles, this is the most recent one I have on my list of worst trades in baseball history for each major league franchise. July 2nd, 2013, a couple of pitching prospects are sent over to the Chicago Cubs. Their names are Jake Arrieta and Pedro Strope. In return, Baltimore got Scott Feldman and Steve Clevenger. Arietta struggled with the Orioles organization. He had a 546 ERA at the major league level, 
but he immediately turned around when he got to Chicago, led them to the playoffs in 2015, he garnered the Cy Young Trophy, and the next year he helped the Cubs win the World Series. Albeit he wasn't as effective individually as he was in 2015, but he still was a big part of that World Series championship. And even though this is a recent trade, it still is the worst in Baltimore franchise history in my mind because Arietta was a direct force in the Cubs changing their culture. Plus, Pedro Strope turned into a nice complimentary piece as well. You think about it, Baltimore hung on to those guys. Their pitching staff is a mess right now. They probably wouldn't be in above 500 teams still, but they wouldn't be in such a despair as they are right now. By the way, the guys they got back in return, Feldman went 5-6 and six in half a season with Baltimore, then he signed with Houston in the offseason. Didn't even make it a full year. Honorable mention, they traded Kurt Schilling to Houston for Glenn Davis in 1991. But I'm not saying that's the worst trade in franchise history because Kurt Schilling is not known for what he did with the Houston Astros. I think a lot of people would be surprised to know that Kurt Schilling played for the Houston Astros. And Glenn Davis, again, he was no scrub. He was a decent pickup. Not worth Kurt Schilling in my mind, but he wasn't a complete bust. The San Diego Padres... Their worst trade in franchise history, another recent one, July 31st, 2010. They sent pitcher Corey Kluber to the Cleveland Indians just to receive Ryan Ludwig from the St. Louis Cardinals. It was a three-team trade. Kluber had a 345 ERA at the AA level with San Diego, so the Padres thought there wasn't much hope for him to improve. He got to Cleveland, he immediately retooled his arsenal. He started adding velocity, and then he tweaked his curveball enough to win him a Cy Young. Meanwhile, Ludwig played in just 160 games with San Diego, and he hit 228. Here's an honorable mention. It would have been very easy for me to say this one could have been the Padres' worst trade in franchise history. 1981, they dealt Ozzie Smith to the St. Louis Cardinals. Smith went on to win 15 gold gloves with St. Louis, but San Diego upgraded offensively. They got Gary Templeton, and his bat was enough for me to say that it wasn't the worst trade in franchise history. still wasn't a good one. But it's not as bad as giving up a future Cy Young winner that you gave up on for Ryan Ludwig. How about another honorable mention? They sent Roberto Alomar and Joe Carter to Toronto in exchange for Fred McGriff and Tony Fernandez. Was there a clear winner in that trade? Yes, but it wasn't a total lopsided trade like the other two were. But I tell you what, here's a really honorable mention. Anthony Rizzo traded to the Cubs in 2002 for Andrew Kashner. Did you know Rizzo played for San Diego? Rizzo went on to appear in three consecutive All-Star games, and he hit 31 home runs every season with Chicago, helping them win a World Series in 2016. I think that has more of a case to be the worst trade in franchise history than the Alomar trade or the one involving Ozzie Smith. But that's just me. The Philadelphia Phillies. There's Kurt Schilling's name popping up again. They traded him to Arizona for Travis Lee, Vincente Padilla, and two others on July 26, 2000. Schilling was late in his career, and the Phillies thought his best days were behind him. Cut your losses, see what you can get. But they were right about the first part. He was late in his career. But after the trade, he still went on to win all three of his World Series rings, including a World Series MVP, and was named to three more All-Star games. So yeah, he was in the later stages of his career but it was also arguably the most accomplished part of his career. By the way, none of the players the Phillies traded for were still on their roster when they finally made it back to the playoffs in 2007. Honorable mention, 
They sent Ryan Sandberg to the Cubs for Ivan DeJesus in 1982. We all know what Sandberg became, but DeJesus did improve his average by 50 points, and he helped lead the Phils to the pennant that season. It turned out to be a good move because previous shortstop Larry Boa steadily declined before finally calling it a career. Turned out to be a move that did win Philadelphia pennant. Maybe not a great move because he gave up a franchise-altering player in Sandberg, but still not the worst in franchise history. Not worse than sending Kurt Schilling to Arizona. The Pittsburgh Pirates, their worst trade in franchise history, actually came in 2003. They made a deal with the Cubs to send Aramis Ramirez and Kenny Lofton to the Windy City. In exchange, Pittsburgh got Bobby Hill, Jose Hernandez, and Matt Brubeck. Lofton was getting late in his career, but he added center field depth to the Cubs. Ramirez, however, was the big prize in this trade, a young, shining third baseman who was under team control until 2006. The Cubs still had three years control of him following the trade. He burst on the scene a couple of years earlier. Both of those players would make the Cubs a driving force in the NL Central for that decade. The Texas Rangers, their worst trade in franchise history. Got to go all the way back to 1982, April Fool's Day. Well, the Rangers were hoping it was April Fool's Day. They sent Ron Darling and Walt Terrell to the Mets for Lee Mazzilli. Darling, the former ninth overall draft pick, won 99 games in nine seasons with the Mets, posting a 350 ERA, has since become a broadcaster. Terrell carved out a solid 11-year career. He won 111 ball games. Meanwhile, Mazzilli played in just 58 games with Texas, ended up being traded to New York, as in the Yankees, for Bucky Dent, who retired two years later. The Rangers certainly were hoping that was just a bad April Fool's trick. The Tampa Bay Rays. Their worst trade in franchise history came before they ever stepped on a ball field. November 18, 1997. Again, Tampa hadn't even played their first game in franchise history. On the day of the expansion draft, the Rays took Bobby Abreu sixth overall, but traded him to Philadelphia immediately in exchange for shortstop Kevin Stocker. Stocker was the shortstop for the Rays' inaugural season, but he hit just 250 during his time with Tampa Bay, and he was out of baseball by 2020. Abreu, meanwhile, went on to hit 303 with 195 home runs, 814 RBI, and stole 254 bases as a Philly. His Total war, 48.9. Yeah, the Rays are wishing they had that one back. Still not as atrocious as Tropicana Field where they play their home games, but it was still pretty bad. The Boston Red Sox. Few choices here, but I'm going with one they made on August 30th, 1990. They sent Jeff Bagwell to Houston for Larry Anderson. It was another prospect for Rennell. Anderson just pitched 22 innings for Boston. Bagwell went on to be a Hall of Famer. Enough said. 22 innings compared to a Hall of Fame career they gave up. Honorable mention, Kurt Schilling. What is it with everyone trading Kurt Schilling? The Red Sox sent him to Baltimore for Mike Boddicker. Boddicker went 39-22 and 22 with Boston and did help them win two division titles. Plus, Schilling wasn't known for his time as an Oriole. That's why this isn't the worst trade in franchise history. And if you really want to go way back, another honorable mention, how about sending Babe Ruth to the New York Yankees? Way back about 100 years ago. But baseball's changed a lot since then. That one speaks for itself. The Cincinnati Reds. Well, they sent old man Frank Robinson to the Baltimore Orioles on December 9th, 1965. In exchange, they got Milt Pappas, Dick Simpson, and Jack Bulgin. And I'll tell you where that old man reference comes from. The Cincinnati front office called Robinson an old 30-year-old. 
But his first season with Baltimore, he proved he wasn't that old. He won the Triple Crown, and he was named World Series MVP. He would lead Baltimore to three more pennants and the 1971 World Series title. Meanwhile, what the Reds get on return? Pappas went 30-29 and 29 over parts of three seasons with the Reds. Simpson and Bulgin were out of the organization by 1967. The Colorado Rockies. Pretty consensus agreement here on their worst trade ever. July 26, 1993, Andy Ashby and Brad Osmus were traded to the Padres for Brad Hurst and Greg Harris. Why they wanted those two pitchers is beyond me. Hurst at the time of the trade was 35 years old with an ERA over 12. You want a 35-year-old pitcher with an ERA of 12.48? Why? What's the appeal? Harris wasn't much better for Colorado. In a Rocky uniform, he went 1-8 with a 5.50 ERA. Meanwhile, Ashby won 70 games in eight years with the Padres. Not only did he get burned on that trade, but the guy that you gave away ends up putting up better numbers for your divisional rival than he ever does for you. Meanwhile, Osmus was traded at the Tigers, a lot of you know this, and he became one of the best offensive catchers in baseball. Honorable mention... No one can understand this trade. They sent Sean Figgins to the Anaheim Angels in 2001. In exchange, they got Kamara Barty, who never recorded a big league hit in just 15 career games. Moving a little further down the list, the Kansas City Royals. Here's David Cohn again. He was traded to the New York Mets on March 27, 1987. In exchange, the Reds got Rick Anderson, current Detroit Tiger pitching coach, Ed Hearn, and Mauro Gozo. Kansas City owner Ewing Kaufman called it the worst trade in baseball history. Certainly the worst trade in Royals history. Cone was just a prospect at the time, but he would go on to win multiple Cy Youngs. He won 194 ball games in 17 seasons, and he accumulated 2,668 career strikeouts. The return... Anderson went 2-3 and three with a 689 ERA before retiring. Hearn had just 35 at-bats in a Royals uniform, and Gazzo never made it to the major leagues with Kansas City. All right, I know you're ready for this one, the Detroit Tigers. Their worst trade in franchise history. And a lot of people might disagree with this. It depends on how you look at things, what your perspective and your standard are. It occurred on August 12, 1987. At the time, the Tigers were right in the midst of a playoff push. So they acquired Doyle Alexander from the Atlanta Braves. The prospect they sent to Atlanta? Mr. John Smoltz. Post-trade war, wins above replacement. Alexander, 6.3. Not bad. Not bad. And he was good for the Tigers. But John Smoltz, 66.4 compared to 6.3 from Alexander. Now, some people might disagree that that is the worst trade the Tigers ever made because Alexander did go 9-0 and with a 153 ERA for Detroit, and maybe it wouldn't be the worst move they've ever made if it resulted in a World Series title. Instead, they dealt a franchise-altering player just to flame out to Minnesota in the ALCS. That's why I'm saying this is the worst trade in Tiger baseball history. Speaking of Minnesota, boy, this one was tough for me. You could go back a ways. The Twins did trade Tom Brunanski when they probably shouldn't have, traded Burt Blylevin when they probably shouldn't have. But here's one that's probably not talked about enough, but it sticks out for me, and it's not the Aaron Hicks trade in New York. Not yet, anyway. That one's on honorable mention right now because Hicks hasn't actually led the Yankees to anything. This trade, I don't think people are talking about enough. It was a really bad move on Minnesota's part. It occurred July 29, 2010. The Twins were leading the AL Central, but they lost star closer Joe Nathan to injury during spring training. They'd been going bullpen by committee, 
but then they decided they wanted a bona fide closer. So they make a deal with the Washington Nationals to acquire Matt Caps. The exchange, it looked like a no-brainer for general manager Terry Ryan. Give up your top prospect, catcher Wilson Ramos. And it's a no-brainer because you have Joe Maurer behind the plate. So the Twins deal Ramos to Washington. They get Matt Caps back. He did fine for Minnesota in 2010 as they did end up winning the division. But he had a terrible 2011 and he was injury-riddled most of 2012. Six months later, Maurer was plagued by concussion symptoms that would never go away. That put an end to his catching career. And just like that, the Twins needed a backstop. Instead, Ramos went on to two All-Star games, and he won the 2016 Silver Slugger Award. Audible mention, there's a couple that I haven't mentioned already. One, going back to 1979, Rod Carew was sent to the Angels, although you knew that was coming, because Carew was visibly frustrated with owner Carl Griffith, and he wanted to be traded, he asked for it, and the Twins obliged. And then the other bad trade that sticks out to you for Minnesota, trading Matt Garza and Jason Bartlett to Tampa Bay in exchange for Delman Young and Brandon Harris. Outside of one fairly decent season with Minnesota, Young never really panned out. They sent him to Detroit. Meanwhile, Harris peaked in Tampa. He never performed at the same level while in a Twins uniform. Couple more left. The Chicago White Sox. Their worst trade came on March 30th, 1992. They sent Sammy Sosa across town to the Cubs in exchange they got George Bell. The Sox gave up a future MVP for a former MVP. Sosa went on to hit 545 home runs in 13 seasons with the Cubbies. Bell struggled with knee injuries after the trade, and he brought a bad attitude to the clubhouse leading to his release. He never even played a full season with the White Sox. And they gave Sammy Sosa up for him. Here's an honorable mention, though. 1986, they traded Bobby Benilla to the Pittsburgh Pirates. It's not a great trade. But then again, the White Sox are fortunate that they're not in the Marlins spot where they're not having to pay Benilla to this day. And finally, the New York Yankees. Another franchise that doesn't make a lot of bad moves, and that's led to their dynasty. That and the fact they can pay anybody whatever they want. They did make one egregiously bad trade on July 21st, 1988. That day, they traded slugger Jay Buhner to the Seattle Mariners for Ken Phelps. This trade was so bad, it even got its own monologue in Seinfeld, during which Frank Costanza rips George Steinbrenner, says, quote, What the hell did you trade Jay Buhner for? He had 30 home runs, over 100 RBI last year. He's got a rocket for an arm. You don't know what the hell you're doing. Costanza was right about that. Phelps was a 33-year-old defensive liability. He was a full-time DH. He hit 17 home runs in two years for the Yanks. Buhner went on to hit 307 for Seattle. I tell you what, that is my list. Hope you enjoyed it. Put a lot of time into that. The worst trade for all 30 Major League Baseball franchises. And with that, it is 5 o'clock. It is time to call it a weekend. Hope you enjoyed the show as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you. Again, you can check it out on demand. Get our free mobile app from the Apple iStore or Google Play. If you missed any part of the list, good way to check up on it. Again, Yankees, Red Sox, Saturday and Sunday baseball here on ESPN-UP. I'm back Monday with our Best Of series. I'm going to have some of our best interviews from this year. That's going to comprise our show on Monday. Hope to have you then. And until then, my name's Tanner Hoops. Thanks for tuning in to the Sports Pan on ESPN-UP.